Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Tiffany Meyer and here are today's top stories. Five Americans are free to return home after years in Iranian prison. But did the U.S. give more than necessary? We examine the details. Hunter Biden is suing the IRS just four days after being indicted on gun charges. He says two agents unlawfully disclosed his private records. A suspect arrested for ambushing and killing an L.A. police officer. The sheriff's department mourns their colleague. Find out what happened. Over 500 major shootings across the U.S. so far this year. The number of shootings keeps increasing year by year. We explore possible reasons. Illinois completely abolishes cash bail, the only state to do so. Find out how bail works under a new criminal justice law. An F-35 fighter jet has a mid-air emergency. The pilot ejects safely, but the aircraft is missing. We ask a former Black Hawk helicopter pilot how a fighter jet can just disappear. And in Nevada, two California pilots lost their lives in a fatal crash. The tragedy took place during an air racing event. Five Americans are freed from Iranian custody in a landmark deal, but it's not without strings attached. Five Iranian prisoners were released in exchange, along with a $6 billion payout. The move is triggering both praise and criticism. Entity's Jason Perry has the update. The United States and Iran rarely see eye to eye, but recent negotiations have led to the release of five Americans from Iranian prisons. An attorney for one of the Americans said he'd been trying to get his client out of prison for over seven years, and he shared the moment he found out. He gave me a call as soon as he came off the plane, <clears throat> and he said, I'm finally free. And it was uh, an emotional moment, I think, for both of us. Jared Gesner is the attorney for freed American Sia McNamazi, who is 51 years old. The other Americans released from Iranian custody are Ahmad Shargi and Murad Tabaz. The names of the other two U.S. citizens were not released as they wanted to remain anonymous. On Monday, the five Americans landed briefly in Qatar, which mediated the exchange, and they're now on their way to the U.S. In one part of the deal, the U.S. released five Iranians from U.S. prisons. Iranian state-run media said one of the Iranians released had been arrested for obtaining equipment that could be used in nuclear weapons, and another was arrested for illegally exporting laboratory equipment to Iran. Only two of the five Iranians released from prison are returning to Iran, while two will stay in the United States and another will move to a third country. In the other part of the deal, the U.S. paid $6 billion to the Iranian regime. Former President Trump posted this on Truth Social. I brought 58 hostages home from many different countries, including North Korea, and I never paid anything. Once you pay, you will always pay, and many more hostages will be taken. Other critics say Iran will use the funds to support terrorism, but White House National Security spokesperson John Kirby said that won't be the case. The regime doesn't get the money. The, they can request a withdrawal for humanitarian goods, agricultural products, medical supplies, food. We'll make sure that the contracts are let with vendors that we know we can trust, and then that material will be delivered to the Iranian people. The Iranian regime does not get hands on this money. 
I spoke with Majid Sadichpour, a human rights activist and the political director for the Organization of Iranian American Communities. And he said he believes that the Iranian regime will launder that money. I venture to say Iranian hospitals will be starved of, debt, of, of, of resources and those resources will be taken to acts of terrorism. And some of these funds will be then funneled, some of it will be funneled to those hospitals in return. But the majority of it, at the end of the day, will go to persecute the people of Iran and exact terror on the people of Iran. The deal comes almost exactly one year after an Iranian woman, Masa Almini, died in police custody following her arrest for allegedly not wearing her hijab properly. Her death sparked anti-government protest, which became the largest show of opposition to Iranian authorities in years. Jason Perry, NTD News. IRS whistleblowers are accused of intentionally disclosing Hunter Biden's private tax records. The president's son filed a lawsuit earlier today. NTD's legal correspondent Arlene Richards has more. Four days after being indicted on gun charges, Hunter Biden is alleging in a lawsuit that the IRS unlawfully disclosed his tax return information, and he blames two IRS agents. Filed on Monday, the lawsuit alleges that whistleblower agents Gary Shapley and Joseph Ziegler repeatedly and intentionally shared Biden's private tax information. Specifically, it states that the two agents tried to smear the young Biden by making statements at more than 20 nationally televised interviews in violation of the Internal Revenue Code and without congressional oversight. Shapley's attorney, Tristan Levitt, told Fox News that the lawsuit is frivolous. What you see here is that Hunter Biden's attorneys are accusing the whistleblowers of releasing this information, but it was the Committee on House, Ways and Means uh, that has the legal authorization pursuant to laws that Congress itself wrote. That's who released this information. Prior to that, the whistleblowers only shared broad strokes that related to no taxpayer specifics. But once that information is released by Congress, just like it was with Trump's tax returns, it's public information and people can speak about it in whatever context. In June, the House Ways and Means Committee voted to publish transcripts of the whistleblowers' testimonies. These tax crimes cover an estimated 2.2 million in unreported tax on global income streams to Mr. Biden and his associates from Ukraine, Romania, and China, totaling 17.3 million from 2014 to 2019. Shapley and Ziegler testified in May. They testified that they faced various limitations during their investigation of Hunter's tax case. The lawsuit states that the agents didn't apply the same rights to Hunter as they did to every other American. Shapley's attorney says the lawsuit is an attempt to intimidate whistleblowers. We definitely aren't going to be intimidated by a frivolous attempt like this, and we hope that other whistleblowers who might potentially be considering coming forward won't be intimidated either. The IRS is not commenting on the lawsuit. Arlene Richards, NTD News. Former President Trump's national security aide Cash Patel is suing the FBI and the Justice Department. It's because the DOJ sought access to his personal email back in 2017. Patel is accusing the agencies of violating his Fourth Amendment right, which protects him from unreasonable searches and seizures from the government. The lawsuit targets seven officials who were on active duty at the time. That includes FBI Director Christopher Wray and former District Attorney Jesse Liu. At the time, Patel was working as a chief investigator under the House Intelligence Committee. 
He was leading the investigation into the DOJ's handling of Crossfire Hurricane, a probe based on the now-debunked idea that Trump colluded with Russia to secure the 2016 election. A suspect is now arrested for ambushing and killing a police officer over the weekend. Kevin Catalano Salazar is in custody in Los Angeles. Sheriff Robert Luna describes his arrest. During that operation, deputies surrounded the residents and called out all the occupants of the, that residence. Eventually, family members did come out. The suspect chose to barricade himself and refused to initially come out. He barricaded himself for several hours. Here's the widely circulated video of the murder on Saturday when a deputy was shot inside his patrol car. Deputy Ryan Klingenbrumer is in the police car. He had just left the Palmdale Sheriff's Station around 6 p.m. A dark gray Toyota Corolla pulls up alongside his car, which police traced to the suspect's home in Palmdale. After they used chemical tear gas, the suspect surrendered. Authorities are confident only one person was responsible for the murder, but the investigation is still ongoing. The department on Sunday held a memorial procession for Deputy Clinton Broomer, who was engaged just last week. The number of shootings in the U.S. keeps rising. We've now seen over 500 shootings so far this year. What's causing this deadly trend? NTD's Arian Pastar explores the issue. Shootings across the U.S. A gunman injured four people in Denver, Colorado on Saturday. This marks the 500th so-called mass shooting this year. That's according to the Gun Violence Archive, which describes mass shootings as events with at least four injured people. The archive shows that gun-related deaths in 2016 were at around 15,000 per year. This number steadily increased to 20,000 last year. Gun-related suicides and injuries went up as well. To explore this issue and more, I spoke with Luis Valdez with Gun Owners of America. Some say the rise in shootings is due to lenient gun laws. However, gun laws across the U.S. have only become more strict in recent years, not more lax. So why is the number of shootings still going up? The number of shootings have gone up because you have a revolving door prison system in which prosecutors and district attorney's offices aren't putting hardened criminals behind bars. They're letting them out on, on the streets. Another reason for this deadly trend is mental health. The National Library of Medicine cited a 2021 study which came to the conclusion that a significant proportion of mass shooters experienced unmedicated and untreated psychiatric disorder. In response to deadly shootings, officials across the U.S. are implementing gun control laws. Just recently, New Mexico Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham suspended the right to carry firearms in public in and around Albuquerque, even for those who have a permit. Now, a lot of people would say that obviously the problem here is guns. If we wouldn't have guns, we wouldn't have shootings. What do you say to that? I could say look at California and New York. They have had some of the strictest gun laws in this country's history, and they have higher crime rates in states like Florida and Texas. Some advocate for universal background checks for potential gun buyers. Valdez says criminals find ways to avoid such checks. They'll steal them, they'll buy them through the black market, they'll get them through other means, as already seen in places like New York and California that already have universal background checks and have proven to be absolutely uh, useless in preventing crime. Before 2020, no year saw over 500 shootings. 
However, 2021 surpassed that number and this year the U.S. is on track to break the 700 shootings mark if trends continue. Arian Pastar, NTD News. No more cash bail in Illinois. The state's Safety Act goes into effect today, marking the first in the nation. Illinois' Pretrial Fairness Act eliminates cash bail as a condition of pretrial release. This makes Illinois the only state to entirely abolish the practice. Judges will decide if a suspect needs to remain in custody based on the seriousness of the charges, flight risk and risks to the public. Proponents of the new law say cash bail is unfair to people who can't afford it. The loudest opposition to the change has come from law enforcement, who say it's not safe. The law was supposed to go into effect this past January, but was delayed over court battles. Searches are underway in South Carolina after an F-35 fighter jet went missing over the weekend. The pilot of the aircraft ejected safely following a mid-air emergency near Charleston. The F-35B fighter is part of the 2nd Marine Aircraft Wing based in North Carolina. It's unclear what kind of mission the aircraft was performing. The pilot was in stable condition, but there has been no word on what, cro- what caused the incident. The military is working with the Federal Aviation Administration to find the missing plane. Joint Base Charleston is asking the public to call if anyone finds the aircraft. The F-35B is worth around $90 million. It's among the most advanced models of fighter jet. The aircraft is capable of vertical takeoff and landing and has stealth modes to shield it from radar. So how can an advanced military aircraft just disappear? Joining us now to discuss is international military strategist, retired Lieutenant Colonel Darren Gobb. During his 28 years of military service, Gobb piloted Black Hawk helicopters and spent seven years in command. Colonel Darren Gobb, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show. Yeah, thanks. Always a pleasure to see you. To begin, how do you lose an F-35 fighter jet? Is there no tracking capability or is it maybe a national security feature? Well, it's uh, there's more than one thing that has to fail in order to do this, but uh, every aircraft that flies in national airspace is required to have transponder systems that allow them to be tracked. And that's not a radar function necessarily. That, that, that's something that the aircraft emits that the uh, the FAA and the radar systems and, and the, uh, the ground control stations and everything around the country can see that and know where you are. Also, the Air Force bases and Army bases where, where I'm used to flying out of all have means to track aircraft in uh, a variety of ways, radio calls and you name it. So there's multiple different, uh, I guess you could say, fail-safes to make sure aircraft are, are tracked. And so this is a, an unusual circumstance. It's not that we haven't lost aircraft before, but for one to just disappear. Uh, That's what's really curious here. And I want to zoom in on that part. So how uncommon is this? Has this ever happened before? Anything close to this? I would say in the modern era in the U.S., it's extraordinarily rare, especially within the uh, within the military community. I can't think of one. I mean, I know we've lost plenty of aircraft before. We've been able to recover them and we had we generally knew where they were. But I dare say I've never heard of a uh, specifically an $80 million aircraft off of an Air Force installation suddenly have a, uh, a broadcast to the public for assistance in locating something like this. Uh, and so my mind first went to 
um, you know, the, either the ocean or a lake or something like that where it could disappear underwater, which my community of Army Aviation, we've had helicopters actually found in lakes decades later and lost in that way, but that was in a different era. With, and so with the sophistication of this aircraft, with the way the American airspace is managed now and everything looking at it at the at the sky, um, I, I honestly can't think of a single time that something like this has happened in recent history. And for a jet like this, is there any idea of how much fuel was left if it would be able to go somewhere as if, if it's crashed? Well, yeah, and I, I think that part still needs to be determined. Like, where did it exactly come from? and how long had it been airborne before it disappeared. Those kinds of things will determine uh, part of how long it could have stayed airborne along with how much weight it was carrying in general. Now, there are many factors that can determine how far it could go. But yeah, in a fully fueled capacity, potentially heading in a direction that you wouldn't anticipate, I could easily see an aircraft like that going quite a ways, and I wouldn't rule out it disappearing even as far as into the ocean. Colonel Daringham, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Have a good day. And there was a fatal aviation mishap over the weekend in Reno, Nevada. Two pilots tragically lost their lives at an air show when their planes collided as they were landing. NTD's Christina Corona has more. Two California-based pilots lost their lives when their aircrafts crashed while attempting to land at an air racing event in Reno on Sunday. According to the Reno Air Racing Association, the planes collided at the conclusion of the T-6 Gold Race at approximately 2.15 p.m. The association identified the pilots as Nick Macy and Chris Rushing. Rushing flew out of Van Nuys and Macy flew out of Tule Lake. The Reno Air Racing Association described both men as expertly skilled pilots and gold winners in the T-6 class. The crash occurred during the final day of the National Championship Air Races in Reno. Authorities said there were no other reported injuries. Christina Corona, NTD News, California. Another accident, an Ohio Railroad worker was killed after he was run over by a remote-controlled train. Officials said that the locomotive struck him when he got caught in between two rail cars on Sunday morning. According to the Transportation Communications Union, he is the third carman killed in this type of incident. His death is now under investigation, and the union is calling for an in-depth scrutiny of remote-controlled trains. Coming up, the auto workers' strike enters its fourth day. Both sides are going back to the negotiation table. Find out how things stand now. Electric vehicles are at the heart of the strikes, according to a former energy official. As U.S. companies cope with President Biden's production mandate, forces abroad are using child labor and slave labor to power the shift to EVs. And California files a big lawsuit against six oil giants. The state accuses oil companies of contributing to climate change. More in a moment here on NTD News. Welcome back. As the United Auto Workers strike enters its fourth day, Union President Sean Fain says that there were minimal conversations over the weekend and they still have a long way to go. We spoke with NTD Business's Don Ma for more. Don Ma, thanks for being here. Yeah, Tiffany, always great to be here. 
So what's the situation so far? Yeah, well, Fain this morning uh, just rejected help from the Biden administration in negotiation talks. You know, last week we got news that top officials were actually deployed to facilitate the talks. But Fain uh, told MSNBC this morning that there's actually no role for the officials in this uh, negotiation. Um, so that was this morning. And over the weekend, actually, Stellantis improved their offer to 21% in pay raises. Uh, I mean, I think for a lot of us, if we got a raise like this, we, we would feel pretty good about it. But, you know, Fain seems like he doesn't like it. Uh, he, he said, quote, uh, it's definitely a no-go. Um, besides that, the United Auto Workers and Stellantis are resuming uh, bargaining talks today as well. So we'll see how it turns out. And now he's asking for 40% pay raises. What's the justification here? That's a massive number. Yeah, so this is what he said. He said the reason uh, that they're asking for 40% is because in the last four years alone, uh, the CEO's pay went up 40%. Uh, and he's saying that they're already millionaires and they got 40%. So basically, he's saying if the Detroit's three automakers raised CEO pay by 40% over the past four years, workers uh, should get the same. Uh, it's simple as that in his uh, in his view. Um, I think he's really comparing himself to the CEOs. Um, the UAW has since lowered its demand to 36% wage increases, uh, but it seems like the two sides are still far apart in contract talks. But besides that, let me just point something else out. Uh, it seems to me that Fain perhaps dislikes the rich. And where I'm coming from with this is that in one of his rallies, he said he wants to wreck the billionaire economy. I mean, that's really neither here nor there, because if you're wanting fair wages, I mean, what does that have to do with wrecking the billionaire economy? I mean, it seems to me maybe he has more than just one agenda. Now, to your point, it seems some of these companies had said this would bankrupt them. But what has the response been from the three automakers? Yeah, that's exactly it. General Motors CEO Mary Barra says that um, she doesn't even know where Fain got that 40 percent from because executive pay is actually pretty complicated to calculate. Uh, the automakers have also said the demands would hike the current mid 60 per hour labor cost to more than one hundred and fifty dollars an hour. And speaking of being out of business, Ford CEO said a 40% UAW wage hike would actually bankrupt them. And GM said as well the UAW wage and benefit proposals will cost it $100 billion. You know, I think Fain should really think about his demands because, you know, if the company goes out of business, right, I mean, forget about wage increases, the workers would be out of a job entirely. And we're already seeing that. Uh, on Friday, Ford said it was indefinitely laying off 600 workers at a Michigan plant because of the impact of the strike. Um, and GM told some 2,000 workers at a Kansas car plant that their factory likely would be shut down next week for a lack of parts. Wow, a lot on the line here. Well, Don Ma, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you, Tiffany. To expand on the strikes and what's at the heart of it, we spoke with Bart Marquois, the Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary of Energy for International Affairs during the Bush administration. He also served as a career foreign service officer with the State Department. Bart Marquois, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show. It's a pleasure to be here, Tiffany. Thank you. Right now, the UAW strike is dominating headlines where the union is asking for 40% pay raises. Car makers are saying that would bankrupt them. But it seems, zooming out a bit, 
electric vehicles are at the heart of this. How is that? You're right. They are at the heart of it. The pay raises are really not that egregious. When you look at the record of the pay of the union members over the last 10 years, they've really not gotten a lot of pay raises over the last 10 years. And 40% is actually making up for lost time. I am... Uh, I, I work on both sides on the unions. Uh, sometimes I am angry at them for throwing a monkey wrench in economic progress in the United States, but I was raised in a Teamster household and I am sympathetic to the plight of the working man. And the, the pay raise demand is not that egregious. It really is all about electric vehicles. It does not take as much time to make an electric vehicle as it does to make a gasoline-powered vehicle. It does not take as many parts. And so the the uh, all of the factories that make uh, catalytic converters, uh, carburetors, mufflers, all of the, the attachments to a gasoline-powered vehicle, those factories will go out of business if the electric vehicle boom continues. And the UAW workers are saying, well, you know, what about us? You're going to tell us to go learn to code? And expanding on that, it seems another issue is that most of that resource, that manpower isn't actually here. It's actually in China. So how has China been dominating or cornering this market? The Chinese domination of the so-called green economy is nearly complete. If you are voting for people who are who are ushering in the the green economy, you're voting to kill American jobs. You're voting for slavery in Africa and in poor countries all over the world. Your battery in your electric vehicle is made in China, and it's made from rare earth minerals that are mined in extremely poor countries, strip mining, and and done by little kids, like seven-year-old boys, nine-year-old boys with buckets standing waist deep in mud, pulling buckets of mud out and carrying it over to be processed to pull out the lithium or the cobalt or whatever the mineral is that, uh, that they have there. If you are voting for windmills to take over farmland in your state, you're voting for slave labor in China. The Uyghurs in China are being forced to build these things, again, out of elements that come from slave-run mines all over the third world. If you have solar panels on your roof, you're voting for slave labor in China to, to build them. That You can't escape this. There are so many Americans that are worried about uh, the, the history of slavery in the United States 250 years ago and shutting their eyes to the slavery that is powering their way of life and their transition to a new way of life. All these things are manufactured in China. Almost none of them are manufactured in the United States. Every automaker's job is in jeopardy as we switch to an electric vehicle economy. And expanding on that, just last week, the European Union launched an investigation on whether to impose tariffs on the flood of cheap electric vehicles coming in from China. What's at stake here? Is it national security concerns, safety concerns, humanitarian? I think it's all of the above. 
it's also economic concerns that it's a there's a straight up case a traditional trade war brewing because the Chinese government is subsidizing the export of electric vehicles into Europe to undercut the European automakers, uh, the, the, the automaking economies of the European Union states. And the EU, Ursula von der Leyen, is uh, considering imposing a much greater tariff on Chinese electric vehicles or, for that matter, American electric vehicles with Chinese components than their normal 10% because they are fighting a protectionism or a, 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 um, an artificial trade boost from the Chinese government. They're dumping their products in the EU and undercutting EU production. And how is this whole deal with the electric vehicles a reflection of the broader geopolitical tensions at play here? It shows the, the absolute ownership of the Chinese, of Joe Biden. The Democrats are pushing this as if it's somehow going to prevent climate change. They're, they're telling the world, we can change the weather 30 years from now if you give us all your money and all your resources, and if you let us completely gut the traditional economy of the United States and Western Europe, just those changes will change the weather worldwide 30 years from now. Although China, India, Brazil, the other manufacturing countries are manufacturing uh, massively and they're producing far more carbon dioxide or any other element that the, the environmentalists claim is a pollutant than we are. The United States has actually reduced our carbon output by more than 20% since 2005. And that's 20% less than 1990 levels. And nobody's even talking about that. But the increased carbon in the world is coming from all of the other countries, not from the United States. To your point, China and India are opening new coal factories. And as some experts have said, it's global warming, not regional warming. But anyways, Bart McCoys, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Tiffany. It's always a pleasure. California is suing oil giants, accusing the industry of deceiving the public about burning fossil fuels. State Attorney General Rob Bonta filed a civil suit on Friday against BP, ExxonMobil, Chevron, Shell, ConocoPhillips and the American Petroleum Institute. The complaint says the oil companies downplayed impacts of using fossil fuels since the 1960s. California alleges that this is leading to wildfires, unclean air, heat and droughts. The lawsuit asks for a fee from the oil companies and also demands that they pay a share of the damage from weather disasters. Coming up, former Vice President Mike Pence lays out his strategy to counter China as he takes aim at Trump. What he says on Taiwan, TikTok and the U.S. military. Over the weekend, 10 GOP presidential hopefuls made their case to Iowa voters. How did their messages land in the key caucus state? And an armed man is arrested after allegedly posing as a U.S. Marshal during an event where presidential candidate RFK Jr. was speaking. Details on this and more after the break.
Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, here are some of today's top headlines. The five Americans detained by Iran landed in Qatar today. The Biden administration finalized the prisoner swap, releasing five Iranians and unfreezing $6 billion of Iranian funds. Hunter Biden is suing the IRS, seeking compensation and data security measures. The president's son is claiming two agents breached his privacy by disclosing his tax information. A Los Angeles County deputy was shot and killed inside his patrol car during an ambush on Saturday. Authorities detained a suspect and are investigating the killing. The U.S. military is searching for an F-35 fighter jet that went missing. The pilot ejected safely from the aircraft following an emergency midair. Former Vice President Mike Pence pitching his strategy on communist China. His speech today comes amid surprise talks between Washington and Beijing. NTD's Iris Tao has more. In a speech given at the Hudson Institute today, former Vice President Mike Pence vowed to recognize the Chinese Communist Party for what it is if he becomes the president. Watch. We will recognize the Chinese Communist Party for what it is the greatest threat to our prosperity, security, and values on the face of the earth. China may not yet be an evil empire, but it's working hard to become one. And that's as he laid out his strategy to counter Beijing, including by boosting funding for the U.S. military, encountering Beijing's intellectual property theft by limiting visas given to Chinese nationals, and also to counter China's influence through decoupling from China in essential industries. He also vowed to ban TikTok on day one and to ban Chinese companies from purchasing American farmland. Because some Republican candidates, including my former running mate, are abandoning the traditional conservative position of American leadership on the world stage and embracing a new and dangerous form of isolationism. I believe isolationism is just another word for appeasement on the world stage. But all this, he says, does not mean that the U.S. should isolate itself from China. And in fact, he used that point to take aim at some of the GOP candidates, including former President Donald Trump. But as Republican candidates are sounding hawkish on China, the Biden White House says it's trying to responsibly manage its relationship with China. This past weekend, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan met with China's Foreign Minister Wang Yi quietly in Europe. And just today, the State Secretary Antony Blinken also met with China's Vice President in New York during the silence of the U.N. General Assembly. And of course, all these meetings could be paving the way for President Biden to meet with China's Xi Jinping in the coming months. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Iris Tao, NTD News. Over the weekend in Iowa, for many Republican presidential candidates, their first big appearance since the primary debate a few weeks ago and their last big chance to show themselves side by side in person to Iowa residents. The state has a significant role in hosting the Republican Party's first in-the-nation caucuses on January 15th. NTD's Stephania Cox was in Iowa. First, put on the full armor of God. Then you can be an effective leader when you do that. So Christ has been everything to me. Well, somebody say praise the Lord. 
Speaking to evangelical Christians at Iowa Faith and Freedom Coalition's presidential town hall, 10 Republican candidates offering their stance on protecting life in the womb. You'll have a champion for life in the Oval Office. If our members of Congress can reach a consensus and pass a pro-life bill that has reasonable exceptions to it that we all agree upon, I will sign that as a pro-life president. I personally believe uh, that uh, life begins at conception. Uh, I do not, however, believe that it is an issue that the federal government should take over. I'm going to do what I think is right. Let, um, you know, we've got to understand that, that, that these mothers need our support. Uh, they need our comfort, and we need to have government and organizations working, especially in this environment. A lot of times the abortion is driven by financial considerations. A lot of these women have no support. Can't we all agree that we should encourage adoptions and good quality adoptions? Can't we all agree that doctors and nurses who don't believe in abortion shouldn't have to perform them? And can't we all agree that no woman that has an abortion should get a prison sentence or the death penalty? Let's start there. And on parents' rights and school choice, Let's take a look at the idea of education. Shouldn't the parents have a right to choose where the kids go to school and what they learn? Let's get rid of the Department of Education. Throw it out. We do that because it's corrupting our kids. I will stand in the fire and make sure that kids growing up in poverty, kids growing up in rural America, have the quality education as a choice. Many citing energy independence and reigning in spending as a way to balance the books. They spoke of building the wall and enforcing law at the border and on foreign policy. Our relationship with Israel will be stronger by the end of my first term than it ever has been because we will treat it as a true friendship not just a transactional tit-for-tat relationship. I think it's absolutely in the national interest of the United States of America to give the Ukrainian military what they need to defeat and repel the Russian invasion so Russia doesn't cross a border that we have to go fight them someday soon. I believe that's, that's the way we prevent World War III. And back home on protecting religious freedom. It's a threat to re religious liberty. It is a threat to liberty of every kind in this country. Make sure that everything from State Department to DOJ is in line in protecting these kinds of, of religious freedoms. At the end of the day, how are these messages landing with Iowans? I just love the energy that all of them brought. Um, I loved that um, there was a consistent theme of faith is important, family is important, securing our borders is important, balancing the budget is important. Um, there's so many issues on the table and I appreciated that all of them were willing to address them. I'm undecided, and uh, but my favorite part about being in Iowa and First of the Nation is having this chance to get this close, interact with them, shake hands, maybe ask them those more direct questions and see what they say. They really put a lot of effort in here. Most of them are going to every, each 99 county, right? And for all of us to feel like we have a seat at the table, that we can make a difference, that's really exciting. An excitement that's expected to grow as January 15th draws nearer. And while the GOP's frontrunner missed the event, former President Trump will be making his own campaign stops in Iowa in just a couple of days, and we'll keep you updated on that. In Des Moines, Iowa, I'm Stephanie Cox, NTD News.
An armed man allegedly posed as a U.S. Marshal outside an event in Los Angeles where Democratic presidential candidate RFK Jr. spoke. The man has been arrested and booked on a felony gun charge. NTD's Jason Blair has more. Adrian Paul Espiro was taken into custody by Los Angeles police around 4.40 p.m. after they received a call about a man claiming to be associated with the event. He allegedly had a U.S. Marshal badge and a shoulder holster with a gun. The event was being held at Wilshire Ebell Theater celebrating National Hispanic Heritage Month. Presidential candidate RFK Jr. spoke at the event. The homeless in California are not coming from other states. They are almost all coming from California, many of them from neighborhoods where they formerly lived in a home. Kennedy found out about the arrest after his speech. He wrote on X, formerly known as Twitter, quote, I'm very grateful that alert and fast-acting protectors from Gavin Day Becker and Associates spotted and detained an armed man. On Monday, Kennedy's office released an open letter to President Biden urging him to provide secret service, which has previously been denied. The letter says, quote, The threat level to our candidate Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is increasing every day. And I ask you in the spirit of patriotism, of fairness, and of good conscience to grant Robert F. Kennedy Jr. the Secret Service protection that his circumstances so obviously warrant. According to U.S. law, Secret Service is tasked to, quote, major presidential and vice presidential candidates and within 120 days of the general presidential election. Reporting in California, Jason Blair, Entity News. Coming up, when couples don't get their finances right, it could lead to divorce. We speak with experts on how couples can manage their finances efficiently and harmoniously. And in the NFL, the struggling Cincinnati Bengals are 0-2 to start the season and might be without Joe Burrow for the next game. We'll have that update and more when we return. Welcome back. When couples don't get their finances straight, there can be negative consequences from stress to debt accumulation to divorce. NTD's Yuchishi asked some financial planners for their advice. Poor financial planning between spouses can lead to arguments, debt accumulation, impaired credit, financial infidelity, failure to save for emergencies, retirement shortfalls, impacts on children, legal problems, mental health issues, relationship strain, limited financial independence, and divorce. The ones that we see just right off the bat is just the, the stress debt problems spill over to, you know, accumulation problems, to saving problems, and then, you know, cash flow problems. And before you know it, it really starts to create a real strain and stress on the, on the marriage. Brian Cannon is CEO of Cannon Advisors and the author of Retirement Unplanned. He says it's important for spouses to come together to plan things as a unit rather than as individuals. This involves creating a budget, a debt strategy, a vacation plan, and an emergency fund and doing it together, and ultimately using the same bank account. We have a lot of clients that come that have been married for 40 years that still operate independently. But I think, you know, um, there's a higher level of success when you're able to merge. Cannon and his wife themselves started off with separate bank accounts, but he says there's a better sense of where your finances are when there's only one. A key part of this is trust, which is built up over time. 
and communication would preferably should take place through talking, <laughs> you know, not not texting, not on social media, actually sitting down and having a conversation. And quite frankly, the sooner they do that, the better they're going to be and stronger as a couple. Larry Sprung is the CEO of Midland Financial and the author of Financial Planning Made Personal. Sprung says spouses should discuss what they want individually and then find common ground. If one of the spouses has a situation where they enjoy spending a lot of their discretionary income, right, versus somebody, the other spouse, who may be more inclined to putting away the majority of their discretionary income for retirement, those two goals are not necessarily aligned. Now, one may not be right and one may not be wrong, right? But the whole idea is to have that conversation and maybe it's meeting in the middle. Sprung emphasizes the importance of having these conversations. He says they're the key to avoiding a plethora of consequences. Yuki Shi, NTD News. And now for your sports news, we bring in NTD's Dave Martin. Dave, we're nearly two weeks into the NFL season. Are there any big surprises so far? Well, the Cincinnati Bengals are 0-2. I mean, they've been a contender really for the last two years. Now, we probably should have expected that because Joe Burrow missed the whole preseason with an injury. He actually got re-injured yesterday. They're not sure about his status for week three, which would be a huge problem if they fall to 0-3. As far as individuals, B. John Robinson, the rookie running back for Atlanta, he looked great. I think everybody thought he would. Ditto for Jordan Addison of Minnesota. One that flew under the radar, though, was Rams rookie receiver Puka Nakua, who has 25 catches through two games. That is a rookie record. We'll have to see if his role changes once Cooper Cup returns, though. And Dave, the Jets had a tough day in Dallas, losing by 20 points. Do you attribute that to Aaron Rodgers not being there? Well, not completely so. Zach Wilson certainly struggled with three interceptions. He had more incompletions than completions. But Dallas, especially Micah Parsons, they were like living in their backfield. He had very little time to get off these throws. Meanwhile, the Cowboys stacked the box against the run. The Jets really did not have much um, offense uh, to go against them at all. Their offensive line struggled, but the, their defense struggled too, which is a, as a surprise. Um, Prescott completed his first 13 pass attempts. Pretty much the Cowboys looked like a Super Bowl contender again. The Jets, not so much. And now looking at the college game, Alabama dropped three more spots in the polls despite winning, while Clemson fell out altogether also after winning. What did you make of that? Well, Alabama, at this point, I think 13 looks all right. You know, their defense looked average against Texas. Their offense, they've tried three different quarterbacks to get something going. So Nick Saban, I'm sure he's going to make this team better, but we have yet to see. Uh, Clemson, I think they should be ranked. We'll see this Saturday. They host fourth-ranked Florida State. I think they pull the upset. Uh, it's going to be one of a number of good games this Saturday. And now shifting gears to baseball, Shohei Otani has been shut down for the season, this time with an oblique injury. What do you think happens with him this offseason as far as free agency? Well, I don't think he's going to get the, the $600 million that we were originally thinking. I mean, he's out with a ligament tear in his elbow. He's going to miss all of next year pitching-wise for that. That's the second time in six years. That's going to cost him a lot of money because teams are going to be scared off. He's still the best 
you know, two-way player in the history of the game. I still think it gets maybe, you know, 400 million range. Uh, I, I actually think now the Angels are going to be the front runners. I think the Mets and Dodgers will be in there, um, but it should be an interesting offseason with them. Dave, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Tiff. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Good night.